well, welcome all of you, and especially I know there's some people here that uh, haven't, at least haven't been here with me before, and so it's good to have you here. Thank you for coming. What we've been talking about for quite some time is the virtue part of the Eightfold Noble Path, uh, all of which is a lead up to right speech, right action, lead up really, in my mind, to right livelihood. And, you know, the fact that I'm not here very often, it's like I'm having a, this interrupted conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know I, I don't know how well I'm succeeding at uh, getting across what I'd like to get across but but yeah in, in, in my mind the discussion of right right speech and right livelihood really is it's a lead up to right, right speech and right action is a lead up to right livelihood because I see right livelihood as living rightly. And it's a, just a, an extremely important part of the practice of, of everything we do. Um, what underlies the entire practice of virtue is the recognition that, uh, that first of all, that, that the nature of life is that there, it, it involves pain and suffering. But yet, there is far more pain and suffering in the world than there needs to be. And knowing that, how, how we speak and act and uh, live, for that matter, even, even think. Um, knowing that, we need to consider whether what we're doing is creating unnecessary pain and suffering in the world or not and whether whether in fact we can or could be doing things uh, that are diminishing the amount of unnecessary pain and suffering in the world that's a kind of uh, the closest thing to a moral principle that uh, we need for the practice of virtue is harmlessness, complete harmlessness is impossible. That too, as much as, as, much as it's in the nature of, of life that involves pain and suffering, it's also not possible to live uh, without, to some degree or another, contributing to the pain and suffering of other beings. But it's all a question about minimizing that and not only minimizing it through not contributing to it ourselves, but also any changes that we can make to, to reduce the unnecessary pain and suffering that comes from other causes in the world. So that's been the underlying theme of the practice of virtue. As a practice, it's a way to develop mindfulness. Its purpose, its purpose, really ultimately is to bring you to a state of, uh, of awakening. To awaken, you have to overcome ignorance, and you have to, have to overcome the compulsions to behave that arise out of desire and aversion. 
And so the practice of virgin, uh, of virtue is a very powerful tool for overcoming ignorance through mindfulness and through uh, freeing yourself from slavery to the compulsions of desire and aversion. As we saw when we talked about right speech and right action, uh, there are no black and whites. It, and we, uh, it, it's a totally mistaken thing for us to view the practice of virtue in those terms. And it is even more mistaken for us to judge uh, on that kind of basis, to judge other people or to judge ourselves. So it is ultimately a practice, not something that is, it's a practice that can be done more or less successfully, but it's not something that uh, there is a particular right way to do it. And that's especially true of uh, right livelihood. Like, right livelihood is living rightly. It's not just how you make your living, it's how you live in every way. Uh, that of course includes how you how you spend the money that you earn through your through your employment. It includes uh, how you feed yourself, house yourself, transport yourself from one place to another. But even even beyond that, it's it's how you how you live and think and act and speak in every moment of every day. But really, right livelihood brings it all together. We've, we've talked a bit about, well, the, the last time I was here, we got into uh, the ideas, uh, somebody raised the question of, how can anybody work for Raytheon? Um, which is that, you know, that how you make your living is, is a choice that you make. And to, to do that mindfully uh, is to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and whether or not it's consistent with uh, the values that you adhere to. It's not your place to judge anybody else that works for Raytheon. It's your place to decide what's the most appropriate thing for you to do. Um, we can look at other things that we mentioned in these discussions. You know, the, uh, a few weeks ago, the, the clothing factory in Bangladesh collapsed and people were killed. And we know that that's going on. And we know that what lies behind that is a, a really cruel exploitation of people that happens in many parts of the world so that we can enjoy uh, all of the goods and luxuries that we do at, at very low prices. Is extreme exploitation and abuse. In many cases, it's next to slavery. As a matter of fact, there's not much difference between what's going on and slavery. How do we respond to that? And in our discussion, you know, we saw, well, you could decide not to buy clothing in Bangladesh. Now, how's that going to help the people in Bangladesh? So, it's complicated. Right livelihood could mean that you did things like 
You chose not to work for Raytheon. You chose not to shop at Walmart because it's a gigantic corporation and does a lot of harm and puts small businesses, you know, destroys small businesses and things like that. You could decide to only walk or, or ride a bicycle so that you don't use any petroleum products getting around. You could decide to uh, not, not eat any kind of animal flesh and buy all of your uh, vegetarian foods from uh, by organic natural foods from uh, co-ops and, and uh, farmers markets and things like that. There are a lot of things that you could do with it in mind that okay, for me, right livelihood means not doing these things because I know that they they cause harm to other people, and that that is a part of right livelihood, but it just barely scratches the surface. And we need to be realistic on. So what if you don't shop at Walmart? So what if you don't drive a car? All of these other things. So what if you don't buy factory-grown chicken meal? How much difference is that going to make? What do you think? How much difference is it going to make? It makes a difference to me. It's going to make a difference to you. That's right. It's going to make it, and that's a really good, that's an important thing to do. It's going to make a difference to you. And that's, that's really the beginning of mindfulness. Because until, you know, until you become a Buddha, then everything's basically going to start with you. <laughs> but is there, is there any, other, any other thing that you can say about what good it's going to do to not do these things? Exactly. If enough of us did, it would make a difference, right? If let's you know, big corporations like Walmart, and I'm not trying, I'm not trying to say anything about Walmart. It's just an example a lot of people are familiar with, right? If enough people stop shopping at Walmart, Walmart would go out of business, right? What would happen next? Something. Son of Walmart would come back up. Something just like Walmart would take its place, right? Yeah, exactly. Or it would change its policies to not go out of business. Yes, it would change its policies to not go out of business. What kind of policies could it change? Well, there are myriad policies it could change. Yeah. Well, but what would be a likely scenario given the world the way it is right now? Well, just like organic, right? Organic yeah, is slowly right. being if, if enough of us do something that can make it, if, if, if everybody decides, I'm not going to buy any clothes made in Bangladesh, then somebody else is going to find some other way to exploit the Bangladeshis. If Walmart decides to pay its employees reasonably and uh, buy things that are not made by wage labor in, in third world countries and things like that, somebody else is going to do that, right? And Walmart will no longer be the big retail giant. Somebody else will be. Somebody who's willing to do all those things and even more. Does that mean that you shouldn't try to 
get behind a, a, a movement to make something happen? I think it means that you do the best that you have the capability of doing, and it might take the form of passing along what you can do closer to home. Right. I don't feel that I can directly aid a Bangladeshi, but you know, I might be able to tithe a little more yeah. because I saved a buck here. Mm -hmm. I can tithe it directly to the homeless shelter or the abused children's shelter or something like that. Yeah. And in that way, perhaps, since we're all connected, some way that you bootstrap someone around you, that has to propagate. I have to hold that faith. It seems like um, the, the way networks have been, I mean, we're talking about kind of large-scale exploitation of other countries that are kind of tied in with the way networks have been created by the people that have had the money to do so over time. Mm -hmm. And so our suffering or other countries' suffering is now kind of inextricable or tied to our pleasure or mm -hmm. And so maybe just by untying that connection, we are making a difference, if only because we're not connected directly to the, mm -hmm. to the cause of their suffering. Right. And maybe new suffering will arise being pulled from, or, you know, from another place, but it won't be coming from us, or at least not you know, mindlessly. There's all kinds of ways that we can make a difference. All kinds of ways. We just have to, we just have to have an interest in making a difference, and uh, not be attached to any particular way as being the right way. After all, somebody could choose to work as a uh, as an engineer for Raytheon, live very frugally on twelve hundred dollars a month, and give the rest of their money to some to people in Bangladesh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. We've heard about change already, though, if you think about it, over the years, maybe because well, I'm a little older, but by not following the people's meaning in countries, there's little countries where people are being abused. We have made change because now at least people are finding out and are questioning it, and those companies that have these practices suffer. So they're, the changes are beginning to happen where they're improving the work lives of the people. And we've made change too. 30, 40 years ago, you couldn't buy organic produce in the grocery store. That's right. By demand, we have made ourselves known. Yeah. So every little bit does make a difference. That's right. We can, we can make a difference. If we intend, you know, it, it's, it's a question of of values, and if we know what our own values are, and we live according to them, change will come about. And the, the magnitude of the change, some, some of you will be able to make changes on massive scale. You know, you, you can be in the role of a, a leader. You could get enough people to agree to do the same thing that it produces some big effect. But everything everyone does can eventually can have a beneficial effect. Absolutely everything. And it's not it's 
you don't, there, there is no right way. There is no best way. I mean, that's what I was trying to get across when I said somebody could work for Raytheon and give their money somewhere else, you know. Uh, it's not up to anybody to judge anybody else how they're doing and what they're doing, or to think that there's any one right way. There is no one right way. But if enough people adopted the right kind of values, and then did their best to live according to those values, we would live in a totally different world. No matter, no matter what you, you as an individual feel like you're capable of doing, no matter what choices you make, you know, what's really behind it all, uh, what's going to make the difference is the intention. You can't necessarily accurately predict what the consequences of your actions are. So you may think not buying clothing made in Bangladesh is a good thing to do, but you don't, you know, you might do that not recognizing the consequences. So uh, we have no control over the consequences of our actions, and we are we we only have to a limited degree the ability to predict the consequences of our actions. But the one thing that will always make a difference. And it will be the best, really the only reliable guide that we have, is our intentions behind whatever we do. And it'll work out better in some cases than others. We'll make mistakes, will be disappointments. But it's the intentions behind your actions that are the best possible guide you have for determining what the ultimate outcome would be. And the other thing, of course, is that the intentions behind your actions are what determines who you are and how you experience life and how you experience the things that happen to you, which is karma. And so, really what right livelihood or living rightly is. It, it's what the whole, what is, it's what this whole path is about. It is establishing clear values, and it is cultivating mindfulness, and it is living mindfully, as we said earlier this evening, knowing what you're doing, why you're doing it, and whether or not what you're doing is appropriate in terms of the values that you hold. And that's what virtue is about. So you work your way up to it bit by bit through right speech, you know, not lying, right action, not stealing, right up till it eventually penetrates every aspect uh, of your life. Yes, you're starting to say something? There, there is a, inside this argument, I see the potential for complete paralysis, that we cannot know about the consequences, we can only mean so very well. No, that, is, that should be the opposite effect, because it is a fact, and we know it, that, that we can't accurately predict the consequences of our actions. Right, so and it, it, it's only naivety and foolishness that would allow us to think that for any length of time. And sooner or later, the world is going to show us that it doesn't happen that way. What 
what that that could create paralysis. But when you but when you realize that the one thing you do have control over is your intentions, then that breaks the paralysis. And also coming back to you know to the self-interest part of it, the enlightened self-interest. Literally. <laughs> if you are self-interested in becoming enlightened, then that's what you have to look to, is the intentions behind your actions. Because if your intentions are coming from a good and wholesome place, if they're coming from love and generosity and patience and understanding and all of these other things, then they are moving you towards your own enlightenment and your own awakening. And even though you can't predict the results of your actions, uh, of your actions, uh, and even though you will make mistakes, and even even though there are unintended consequences, if you consistently act out of those intentions, the net result is going to be pretty good. You can be confident of that. So that's why I say, you know, no need to be paralyzed. People are paralyzed. People are paralyzed because they say, well, what difference does it make what I do? I'm just one person. Look at this whole world going on. That's paralysis. Yes. And what you're saying is, you know, it, it, it's true. This is the next part of right livelihood. So right livelihood is how you make your living, where you live, how you live, what you eat, how you clothe yourself, all these other things. There is another really important part of, of, of living. You, you live because you have some sense of meaning and purpose in your life. When people lose that, they tend not to live very long. Right? And so, living rightly, right livelihood, is directly connected to how, how you establish for yourself some meaning and purpose in your existence. And that's really what all of these different things that we've been talking about are pointing towards, are they not? Meaning, that what gives you a life a sense of meaning and purpose. And for most people, for most of the history of mankind, they live, they, they, they live for the sake of taking care of themselves and taking care of their offspring and loved ones um, for what for what purpose what what is the value and meaning in that I think how many people you, you ask them what did you what did you do in this life what did you accomplish well I raised three kids and I've got 16 grandchildren, <clears throat> or something like that. Um, they may say, well, I built these bridges and I wrote this novel, and... but it's pretty much all just contributing to this, a, a cycle. We're born, we live, suffer. Reproduce, right? Raise our children so that as we age and die, they can repeat the same cycle over again. It's the cycle of birth, suffering, aging, and death. 
So from the point of view of all the things that we've talked about, you might look at that and say, well, that, that, that doesn't give my life the kind of meaning and purpose that I want. I, I'd like my life to have more meaning and purpose than that. And I can translate that into the very simple principles that we've talked about all along. That kind of behavior and that approach to life is coming from selfishness, self-interestedness, acting, being all of your actions being driven by desire and aversion. And that's exactly what we would like to step out of. So in terms of giving your life meaning and purpose, instead of finding meaning and purpose in selfish endeavors that just basically just perpetuate the suffering of the world, it is to this is the ultimate right livelihood, is to find a way to give your life meaning and purpose through the opposites of those, through wholesome uh, aspect, loving kindness, compassion, generosity. Right? So right livelihood is really living out of that place. Just like right speech is not just not telling lies and not engaging in gossip and divisive speech. Right speech is using speech in positive, beneficial ways to help people. That's right speech. Right livelihood is not just uh, not doing certain kinds of work and not buying certain kinds of things and things like that. It's making what... It, it's making the source of your life energy, the meaning and purpose in your life, something wholesome and positive and beneficial that contributes to the best you can to the betterment of the world. So that when the time comes for you to leave this world, rather than saying, well, you know, I raised X number of kids and had so many grandchildren and, 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 and I wrote a book of built a bridge or two, you know, you, you can say to yourself that I lived a life worth living. I made a difference in some ways. I did my best to make a difference. You know, I may not go down in history books, but I know that I touched, <clears throat> I touched different people in different ways. And it was positive. Is there really any, um, any way those two things can't coexist? You know, like, isn't it, isn't it more like how you went about raising your kids and how you go about doing things rather than what you actually kind of did? You know, like the, again, the intentions that you, you went with when you were raising your kids or building your bridge or writing your book. Oh, sure. The, the intentions make a huge difference yeah. with, with absolutely everything you do. And whether or not your children grow up to be uh, selfish, money-grubbing crapulists or, <laughs> or uh, murderers and rapists or something like that, or whether they turn out to be really noble people who in their turn make a big, make some positive change in the world. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, raising, we're, we're, we're not, we're not, Saying is anything wrong with raising your, your kids, but yeah, how you raise your kids. Your children are, to a certain degree, part of, the, they're your creation. And 
if you if you put yourself into that in the best possible way, then just like with anything else, it's probably going to produce a better result. So how you do that is really important. But so don't misunderstand me. I, I just I'm trying to say that absolutely every single thing you do is really an expression of living rightly or right livelihood. And it should be done with mindfulness. And it should involve it should involve decisions and choices and intentions that arise out of the most wholesome of motivations. And of course the greatest wisdom and understanding that you are capable of. And it's probably just as well that you assume that everybody else is doing that. Because you can't you can't really stand outside and judge someone else. Although if you get to know them well enough, you may get to know them well enough to realize that they could use a little advice and maybe be steered in a more positive direction. And of course that's just one example of all of the many different kinds of things you can do to make a positive difference in the world. You might call that discernment rather than judgment. The meditation practice and all these other practices that we've talked about, that including right speech and right action, they're all really practices for being able to do this one thing uh, in the best way that you can. Right understanding, we talked a lot about right understanding and right view. They prepare you to be able to practice right livelihood. Meditation, cultivation of mindfulness, intentional stability, things like this, they all enable you to practice right livelihood. What do you think of that? Yes? Today, I read an article uh, a cop who has gotten a hero award because he patrols the uh, a famous bridge in San Francisco where people like to jump off to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. And he has stopped 122 people from doing so mm -hmm. and talked them down. And the gist of his conversation with them amounts to asking them, what are your plans for tomorrow? And when they say, well, I haven't got any, he says, would you like to make some? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, and that turns out to be pivotal, that for so many, this concept that, as Shaw put it, it isn't about discovering yourself, it's about creating yourself. Exactly. It's about creating yourself. And it's, that's that's what that's what I hear you talking about. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. That's it's about it's about creating yourself. It's not about finding meaning and purpose in life by looking under the right rock where it's been hidden, or unlocking mm -hmm. the, the mystery like that. It's uh, 
it, it's creating that. And it's creating it in the best possible way. Yeah. There is no self that you are. But you are an individual functioning as a self in the world, and it's a self that you create. It's not a static thing, it's a constantly changing thing. And up to a certain point in your life, that self that you are is created completely by accident, haphazard. Uh, then you come to the point where you realize that you are the creator of yourself and, and you take the reins. And that's, that's really what we're talking about. So who you are and the meaning and significance that your life has really is entirely in your hands. And what could be more important to you, really? The Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. He taught that we, that all of our suffering comes from within. And, uh, you know, pain is inevitable, but all the suffering is optional. That's all, that's all about taking control and getting to that place where you are no longer creating yourself as a suffering being. But you are not separate. That's the other thing, is that the, the, we are, there, there is no separation. That's an illusion. And when you real, the more you realize it's true, then the more you realize that if you're not separate, we're all connected. And so what happens to anyone else and everyone else, it really is, it's our problem. It is our problem as well. But we, if I'm creating my own suffering, mm -hmm. and by creating the person who is having the suffering, right? Um, then, oh wait, I just lost it, never mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now I will come back. Well, and for sure, if you can, if you can learn to create yourself, to recreate yourself in the kind of person who has no suffering, okay, then now that you know that, know how to do that, then one of the greatest things you can do for anybody else would be to teach them the same thing. So if we're all interconnected and we're all not the self we think we are, then is it possible really to create a self that doesn't suffer without changing a lot of everything, without you know, this whole web of interconnection also changing and shifting, and, and what is the dynamic between those, those two? Well, the, it, uh, it, because we're all totally interconnected, you can't be totally free from suffering until all sentient things are totally free from suffering, which is really what's meant when you say, you know, that, uh, there can't be any complete and total enlightenment until every sentient being has been enlightened or awakened. It's really the same thing. So, because what is enlightenment? What do you, the Buddha didn't teach enlightenment. He taught the end of suffering. Right? And so complete and total end of suffering means, since we're interconnected, it means everybody. So it's relative. Up to that point, up to that point it's relative. That means that as long as you're working towards that point, 
uh, and you start off. You start off right here. You you are the personal center of your world, and so you start off working to end your own suffering. But as you realize that that the boundary that you thought was there isn't there, then naturally it has to extend beyond that, and and you're working to uh, relieve the suffering as far as you can reach. Okay, I'm going to ask a, I'm, I'm going to ask this like I'm mean. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> if I have a thing about which I am very sorry and very sad, and I see that I am creating that suffering, and I say, well, I'll do my level best not to make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. And I'll go forth and try and put it right. And some things, there's no putting right. You've, you've missed that moment. And you just, you live with the consequence, even if you didn't see it coming before you got one. And so there you are, miserable, feeling sorry for yourself. And you say to yourself, well, I must create myself as a person who does not experience this suffering. I'm going to be someone else now who does not have this. I'm going to, to, to try and be much kinder to myself now. Mm -hmm. Isn't that just a little bit self-serving? Oh, well, I'll just stop hurting. That'll, that's the ticket. Of yeah. course it is. It's because you're, when you're immersed in selfhood like that, yeah. Yeah, what you so, do has to be self-serving. So that's kind of, that just let me, let, me, let me put it this way, that kind of cessation of suffering does not seem to actually move on along. Well, what you described isn't so much a cessation of suffering as it's if you relieve your own suffering enough to do something productive, then you can do something productive about yourself. And if you can do something productive about yourself, you can do something productive about the world. Okay. All right, you got me there, productive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, after all, you know, everybody, we started out, no matter how well we might intellectually understand that we, we aren't the selves, separate selves we think we are, no matter how well we might understand that, that the world we think we live in is just an imaginary world that our mind has created because we're not capable of grasping reality as it is, you know, and this is where you start from. This is where you start from. you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so it's your own, it's the desire to end your own suffering that leads you to, to do these things in the first place. And to the degree that you go about that in the right way, you will succeed. And to the degree that you succeed, then you'll be capable of succeeding more. So you don't just wake up one morning and say, I don't hurt anymore. No, because the thing is, when you find yourself feeling sorry for yourself and miserable, you know, if you say, okay, I, I made myself to be this person that's, that's this, I, I created this person that's suffering, now I'm going to create myself as someone different. Nice idea, but how do you get there? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you look and see, how is it that I'm creating this, my, my suffering right now? So that's, that's where it begins. 
you see, you see what it is that you're doing so that you can begin to make the change. You can't just say, you can't just decide, okay. No, it's like some people, they get as far as the idea of realize that, okay, the world I really, I, I live in is really a projection of my own mind, right? And I can see that other people, they're living in the same world, but they're projecting, projecting a different one. So you say to yourself, okay, by gosh, I'm going to project a different world. It's much happier for myself. <laughs> How much luck do they have? Not at all, basically. Because, <laughs> you know, first of all, you, you, you've got to understand the, the inner machinery of your own mind and how it works in order to understand why it's creating this unhappy world you live in so that you can change that. And that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about, learning to do that. So I don't know what else to say. If this is ultimately about living rightly, practicing right livelihood in every moment of your life, and you've got to do some study, and you've got to do some meditation, and you've got to do some various some structured practices in order to empower and enable yourself to do that. Because otherwise, you get up in the morning with a good intentions, and by the time you finish breakfast, You've lost the whole thread. <laughs> Just go browse the internet, you'll be alright. <laughs> but it's a powerful set of tools. And it's a powerful way of understanding things. And keeping in mind that it is only a way of understanding things. But it's a powerful and effective way of understanding things. And a powerful set of practices. So. It's not about meditating until you become awakened. It's about, it's about, the meditating is just one part, part of it that enables you to do the rest of it. Say you meditated two hours every morning and two hours every night. There's 20 other hours a day. It's five times as much, I mean, counting the time you're asleep, but you know, as some of you already know, Meditation practice spills over into the sleep hours as well, you know. So, you, know, you, you can't you can't expect to accomplish everything in uh, one fifth of your day while the other four fifths are, are neglected. And in a sense, the time you spend meditating really serves the rest of your time. It needs to. That's the way it should be. And of course, we compartmentalize. We do. Okay, I did my meditation, I got that done, you know. I'm a better person for it, and someday I'll be a Buddha. Now it's back to life as usual, right? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as I say, in this very broken up way of being here only uh, every second week or so, and occasionally only every third week, uh, I don't know how successful I've been in trying to put this whole picture together. And it did occur to me that I probably probably should have told you some weeks ago where we were going. I tend to do that. I tend to, you know, it's build up and then there's, there's the finale. And I've learned, I've learned this from uh, writing the book and having people uh, helping me with it. That, no, 
what you do is you tell them where you're going first. Yeah. And I, I neglected to do that in this discussion of virtue. But we did get to the finale, and hopefully you can <laughs> you, can, you can look back at the other ground that we covered, and, and you can see how it all adds up to this. Does this mean that we're going to move into another? Yes, we're going to, we're going to move on and, and talk about. So so far, you know, where we got to so far is what did the Buddha teach? Suffering, suffering and the suffering. suffering. What did he teach us about suffering? The first two noble truths. Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, and uh, the cause of our suffering is craving, desire, and aversion. And then the end of the, the so that's the suffering part. The end of suffering is there is a perfect, complete, and total end of suffering when you have completely eliminated craving. To completely eliminate your craving, you have to overcome the ignorance uh, in, in which craving is rooted. And then the Eightfold Path is the path, the means, the tools, uh, the process by which you accomplish that uprooting of ignorance and, uh, the, and achieve the end of craving, which equals the end of, end of suffering. So then we work through the Eightfold Path, right, right uh, understanding, a right view or intention. This was all the sort of cerebral stuff, understanding, uh, understanding where we're going and why and how it all fits together. And then we moved on to the virtue part, which is that that's that's the intensive daily practice, uh, learning to be mindful in your life so through right speech, right action, so that ultimately you can. Uh, accomplished right livelihood. So now we'll move, we'll kind of complete the circle because we, re we really started with meditation. So now we're going back to the third part of the Eightfold Path, which is uh, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. So we're going to so start getting in greater depth than we have in the past uh, in some aspects of this. Which is why the next teaching retreat that I'm doing which is in October 11th or 12th, 11th and 12th, something like that. 11th, 12th, 13th. So, and this was a suggestion from a number of people and I really appreciated it. In the past teaching retreats, I've done a certain amount of guided meditation. And so this next retreat is gonna be all about meditation. And, you know, I, I like trying trying things that I've never seen anybody else do before and that I've never done before. So I'm going to just guide you as much as I can through the whole process of meditation over the course of that weekend. We'll be doing lots of guided meditation with question and answer sessions in between. And in the past, uh, the amount of sitting we've done has been relatively small compared to the amount of, of talking. And I, I'm really determined that we're going to turn that on its head this time. We're going to do a lot of sitting, a lot of, the instruction is going to be in the form of the guided meditation. And the discussion, you know, so when I, when I sit here and guide the group through a meditation, that's, that's the instruction part. 
afterwards, just the question and answers would, you know, talk about what happened, uh, what, what you, yeah, whatever questions you might have. So we are now getting back in to the place we started, which is uh, formal practice. Formal practice. Right effort, right concentration. It really, it's not concentration. It's right samadhi. And samadhi doesn't mean concentration. That's one of the things we can talk about maybe next time I'm here, is what right samadhi means. And right mindfulness, which we actually talked a little bit about tonight. Thank you.